Hello there, thank you for joining for episode number 133 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode I'm pleased to welcome Mustafa Minawi. He is Associate Professor of History at Cornell University and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Central European University and the author of The Ottoman Scramble for Africa, Empire and Diplomacy in the Sahara and the Hejaz, published by Stanford University Press. The book tells the story of the Ottoman Empire's expansionist efforts in Africa and Arabia during the age of high imperialism in the late 19th century. Drawing on previously untapped Ottoman archival evidence, it examines how the Ottomans' participation in the Conference of Berlin of 1884-1885 and their involvement in the aggressive competition for colonial possessions in Africa were part of the empire's bid to secure inclusion in the top ranks of European powers at the time, perhaps turning on its head the typical framework of the colonising European and colonised non-European, or at least complicating that narrative. Before we get started with the interview, let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you a number of extras, including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. I'm still waiting for confirmation of our updated discount deal with IB Taurus and Bloomsbury for 2021. It's just taking a bit longer than we were expecting. But it's almost all sorted now, just a couple of extra bureaucratic hurdles to overcome. Just keep an eye on Turkey Book Talk's social media accounts, Twitter and Facebook, and I'll post details as soon as it's finalised. But as a member, you do also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Mustafa Minawi. The book addresses a period in the late 19th century when the Ottoman Empire was on the defensive, steadily losing territory and basically just trying to survive. It may seem illogical to include it in the narrative of European imperial expansion in Africa, but by signing up to the Conference of Berlin in 1884, the Ottomans tried to enter the elite league of expansionist empires in Africa. I asked Mustafa Minawi to start by describing why the Conference of Berlin was organized and how the Ottoman Empire signed up for it. So the Ottoman Empire was invited. None of the nations or the political entities that were not invited were allowed there. There are some political entities that asked to be there as observers, but to be on the table, actually negotiating the different agreements, you have to be invited. And the reason the Ottomans were invited, even though they were on the defensive, they were very much under predatory desires, if you will, of of certain European powers in different places at different times. But the really 
the big kind of huge blow was, of course, the uh, the first Berlin Conference, which was in 1878, 79, immediately after their defeat, kind of a major defeat to the uh, Russian Empire. So after that specific defeat, they were kind of discounted. They literally, their territories were being negotiated over by other people. Of course, they were there, but they had to make huge compromises, which allowed certain European powers, uh, particularly Russia, but others as well, to parse out some of the Balkans, the heart of the Ottoman Empire is what I call it, as well as, uh, of course, some of the eastern provinces on the border with uh, what is today Armenia and Georgia. The reason they were invited despite all of this is because the Ottomans were part of the concert of Europe something we forget or we don't take as seriously. It was definitely taken seriously by uh, by Europeans, even though uh, begrudgingly. <laughs> what I mean by that is that after 18, after the Crimean War in 1856, there was the Paris Peace Agreement in which the Ottoman Empire was officially accepted as being a member of the so-called civilized nations, i.e. their sovereignty, theoretically anyway, should, should be protected. They earned the right to be part of the European in concert, and thus they're part of a select group of empires or nations or polities whose sovereignty is not to be messed with, uh, which means two things, essentially, that those that are not included, their, their sovereignty is in question always. And the second thing is that people that are part of this agreement should not step over each other's uh, spheres of influence. The Ottoman Empire between 1856 and 1878 obviously has gone through uh, a lot of defeats and, you know, it's bankrupt by that time. It is militarily uh, negligible. It's weak and economically it was not doing well either. So if you do not know all of this background, you would be surprised that the Ottomans would be there in 1884. But if you understand this kind of uh, buildup of a new world order that really started in the 1850s, in which there's kind of almost a legal framework that is being, or legal scaffolding, I should say, that is being formed around a new idea of a set of nations that have been engaged in colonialism for a while, but now require some sort of legitimacy, at least within one another, to continue to do what they're doing. You would understand that there is no way but to have invited the Ottoman Empire into into this Conference of Berlin that happened in 1884-85. Now, understanding this, the Ottomans could have easily not attended if they feel like they that their attendance would not have been beneficial to them. But obviously, there's also an Ottoman understanding that the moment you stop being on the table, you are on the menu. This notion of a group of nations that are uncolonizable, while the rest of the world is theoretically at least open to interpretation, the moment you stop being part of those group of nations, you've almost admittedly become one of the nations of the of the rest of the global south. So if you have a, an invitation, you take it and you try to make the best out of it using the legal tools that are being constructed to solidify or to enforce this colonial world order, if you can become a convincingly one of the nations that are that are associated with the European world order that is allowed or that is acknowledged to have possessions beyond its own territories legally, then theoretically your own sovereignty should be respected or at least for a longer period of time. 
let's tease it out a bit more because sure. you say there there was this sort of zero sum calculation going on essentially mm-hmm. and the calculation mm-hmm. as you say that the ottomans were making as well as everyone else actually absolutely was that they are either part of the system that creates the rules and therefore has to basically be a colonizer or they become part of the rest of the world where those laws are applied but you're basically the subject uh, or subjected yeah. to those laws yeah. and yeah. Uh, as you say there the ottomans always wanted to obviously fight against not being seen as a unsovereign power if that makes sense so I don't know. Is that a correct interpretation of of what was going on? Yes, more or less. I mean, this is it's almost if I were to tell this story in an elevator, I would put it exactly that way. Uh, So, yes. But of course, there are nuances that I'm hoping we're going to delve into. But if I was to kind of in broad outlines, that is how I would say it. Yes. And thinking about the geographical areas, the Ottomans were making claims on the region stretching from the coast of modern-day Libya to Lake Chad, further south. Exactly. This area had never been subject to formal Ottoman governing uh, institutions, yeah. but it shared economic, cultural links with other Ottoman provinces. And this was the area that became part of the broader Ottoman claim to share in the uh, European partition of Africa, essentially. Just give yeah. us an idea of the uh, the regions that we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. So part of the reason I, I, I'm i thinking of this territory as very different than the Ottoman claim to, of course, what they think of as Ottoman proper or Ottoman provinces proper, including the province of Libya, is that this is a territory that the Ottomans were never said were was part of the Ottoman Empire and they're trying to defend it. They're saying that it was not part of the Ottoman Empire, but according to the legal terms of the Act of Berlin, they can claim it as the hinterland that is a economically connected to the coastal area that was already acknowledged as Ottoman. That's what makes it different. And the Ottomans talked about it in different terms. They actually invented terms to talk about this new possession, they call it, or or Mustamlakat colony from the border of the Libyan provinces all the way to Lake Chad, uh, to the Lake Chad. It's really better to understand it as what we think of as the Lake Chad Basin, because the Lake Chad Basin was already kind of a, a, a cohesive political unit that existed in, in, in conversation with the Ottoman Empire, as well as connecting kind of the Sahel all the way from Sudan to the West, to basically where the French were at that point. So the Ottomans were definitely connected with that, uh, with that region, particularly Benghazi and Libya, economically and as well as culturally. And in, the, in years that had passed, there was also a lot of political exchange that happened through marriage and movement. But that is not the reason the Ottomans were claiming that territory. And that is important. They are saying that they are claiming this territory because they already have effective occupation of it and because it is the hinterland of Libya. So the terms of what they're claiming this territory with are new terms. They're using the language from the Conference of Berlin as opposed to the old language that they were using when they, for instance, they're talking about their right to Yemen. So when they're fighting with the British over Aden, it's a, it's a whole different story, right? Yemen is a, is a province in the Ottoman Empire, and it's an Ottoman Empire proper, so on and so forth. So that is their claim when they're discussing it with their European counterparts, when they're making legal arguments about why this area is, is part of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the other claim that they're making locally, it is they were very invested in getting the buy-in of local uh, leaders. So I, I focus on the Senussi and uh, the Senussi as, as not just, of course, a Sufi leader, or a, but also, of course, as, as the main political unifier of this area. And the Senussi is a perfect kind of 
nodal power that they can tap into. Because in reality, there are many uh, different sultanates that the Senussi operated with or, uh, or kind of had some kind of political influence over that the Ottomans did not have political influence over directly. So this is the region we're talking about what is now northeast Nigeria, parts of the Central African Republic, parts of Darfur in Sudan. So the, the three main policies are three different sultanates that kind of operated and, and were uh, in that area for a very long time. They had a connection with the Senussi that the Ottomans did, did not. And the Ottomans tried to claim this connection on a local level, speaking with the Senussi and speaking with the local people on the ground as kind of a claim by proxy, if you will. But that negotiation was not about the Ottomans saying to these political powers, the local political powers, you owe us to be part of the Ottoman Empire. It's about them saying it is better if you align yourselves with us than what, than what is coming, which would be the French or the British. So they, the Ottomans needed the help of these political entities on the ground more than these political entities. So the political entities actually had the choice, not the Ottomans. But the Ottomans' connection, including, of course, their religious affiliation, allowed them an access that the British and the French did not have and they were envious of. As I was reading the book, it is quite striking that today Turkey has this foothold in Libya and sometimes in the public messaging that you see from the Turkish authorities, it, mm-hmm. it appeals to this, to historic Ottoman ties to the region. And yep. indeed, Libya was, as you say there, the centre of its attention in Africa yep. during this period. It was really the beachhead into mm-hmm. Africa. I wonder mm-hmm. if that observation has also struck you as you look at the, the recent developments in Libya, Turkey's deepening role in the in the war there. It ha- it struck me. I wasn't surprised. I should say this because they have been doing this not just in Libya. Libya is just the latest place that the world is paying attention to. They they are claiming a political as well as kind of a historical ties. I should call it to different parts of Muslim majority Africa, the countries that are Muslim majority, through this kind of um, imagined past of Ottoman friendship with these regions. I say imagined. That doesn't mean it is fake or it's not not true. But the formality and the intention behind these connections are, of course, portrayed in this humanitarian, equal friendship of co-religious entities. The reality, of course, is very different. We're talking about an imperial power versus a local power in all of, most of these cases. And the Ottoman Empire was an imperial power. Muslim or not, they were an imperial power and they operated like an empire. That is very important to remember. So, yes, their, their involvement or bringing the involvement of the Ottoman Empire in Libya and the historical ties that they had with Libya is actually almost natural, particularly in Libya. Remember, Libya was a province of the Ottoman Empire as opposed to the other regions in further south. So it makes more sense to talk about the Ottoman connection with Libya. Of course, again, imperial power. It was a it's a it was an imperial province that is different than being you know part of a nation state. Having said that, again, Libya's connection with the Ottoman Empire is not in the late 19th century, at least, is not questionable. But their connection with Africa goes beyond that. And that is where actually it becomes a lot more interesting to me than Libya. The Turkish government is claiming much more uh, uh, historic connections with places that where the connection was a lot more tenuous. And in many cases, I really want to say borderland colonial, even though that I'm going to be slapped on the hand for that. We're talking about, you know, further south, including the region, uh, the hinterland of Libya that I'm talking about in the first book, as well as the one that I'm working on right now, which is the Horn of Africa, which is a different story. 
And the way that the Ottomans, as you mentioned a bit before, leveraged their influence essentially in the region was through this Sufi order, the Sanusi order. Just describe to us a bit the nature of this relationship. What were the historic links between the Ottoman authorities and this order that uh, had authority that it could use? Absolutely. So the Sanusi order has been studied extensively as a Sufi order, in, uh, particularly in, in English. In Arabic, it's talked about as a proto-Arab nationalist order a lot of the times, or proto-Libyan nationalist order or a political entity. And of course, in French literature, until recently, it was talked about as um, the terrifying, they don't call them initially resistance fighters, they call them, you know, the savage Muslims that were terribly un- anti-Christians. They call them like the black order. Uh, There's a a terrible term that they use for them as a way of talking about their savagery. So they were discussed in very different ways. But the fact that they were discussed in all of this literature, uh, even early on, tells you of their importance in one way. What I try to talk about them as is, is not their religious importance, which is important, but rather it is their political influence that in some cases was stems from their religious religious influence, or I want to say their Sufi order and its popularity in that in, in that region, that they mobilized in very different ways in different pl- parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So this order was started much earlier in the 19th century. What people call the Grand Sanusi is the person who actually started it. I don't want to go into the very details of where he was born and where he got his teaching. All I can say is that at one point, he became invested in making this order cater towards not the urban populations, but rather specifically to this underserviced nomadic and semi-nomadic populations that otherwise the sedentary states could not reach and could not control. That's where the strength, their strength or their negotiating strength lied uh, for the Senussis. So the order is being pushed further and further south, but as it's going, as its center is going from uh, closer to uh, the coast or the urban centers and moving further into into towards the uh, the Sahara or sub-Saharan Africa their influence is 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 extending further and outside of the encroaching uh, colonial and imperial powers that makes them incredibly strong their influence on the ground was uh, it's about all of the services that they provided for a lot of the population that other that was otherwise outside of the reach of the empire or that did not want to be reached by the empire because if you want hospitals and schools and uh, roads and police force you are exposing yourself you are reducing some of the autonomy that you've had for centuries by allowing these states to come and control some of these aspects of your life what the senussi was able to do in a way that others were not able to do is that he was able to somehow unify to a certain extent a lot of the tribes as well as the different groups so Bedouins, Arab Bedouins, as well as Tuareg and so on, were able to find a common link through the network of the Sanusi order and through the services the Sanusi order provided, as well as the, the religious practices that the Sanusi order kind of taught to this population. So that's where the Sanusi order's power lies. The Ottomans found him, as well as, by the way, the French and the British were negotiating with him as well later, but the Ottomans found in the body 
of uh, Al-Mahdi al-Sunusi, the son of the Grand Sunusi, the perfect ally, and they had to negotiate with him in a way that would allow him to maintain his authority and autonomy, because that is how they would be able to then extend or claim an extend of Ottoman effective occupation by proxy through his own rule, if he were to be to pledge allegiance to the to the Sultan outside of the uh, his local autonomy, if that makes sense. So the uh, the uh, the Ottoman Empire wanted to show that beyond just the the hinterland doctrine and the connections that they had through economy and and history, they already have a presence on the ground through the Senussi order and the Senussi network that was on the ground, which is brilliant, uh, really. Um, and it it worked until it didn't work. And you know that it it worked until it didn't work when uh, the negotiations with the Senussi stopped happening and the, the French marched in with their army. And they started putting down a lot of the rebellions that were led by the Senussi with the support of the Ottomans in very and, and putting them down in incredibly violent ways, in a way that the Ottomans could not respond or the local order, even though it continued its kind of military resistance, could not uh, stop. Sadiq Azimzadeh is a character through whom much of the book is described. It's a kind of protagonist of the book. And he was an Ottoman official, an Arab from Damascus, I believe. Who mm-hmm. was he and why was he important in the story that you're telling in the book? He's he's a self-described Ottoman official who later in the in the beginning of the 20th century he starts to hyphenate his description. So he's an Arab Ottoman. He never called himself Arab. I really need to make this clear, and it actually matters at this point in time how you identify yourself, as your very sense of belonging is being challenged by different formations that are happening in Istanbul. So he is important uh, as an Arab Ottoman official that was incredible loyal to the imperial project because he he was deeply invested in it as an imperialist but also his very importance existence was part and parcel of the Hamidian uh, notion of imperialism or the political project that Hamidian uh, government was doing by Hamidian government I mean the government of Abdul Hamid we call it the Hamidian period and the Hamidian government in the same way that the British call you know anything under Queen Victoria as the Victorian Victorian government or the Victorian period so the Hamidian period, Sadiq Azimzadeh, uh, was one of many who were deeply invested in this imperial project. His very education, his very growth in the, in the, in the administration and his kind of climbing the ladder up was through this pipeline that was, that was invented or that was uh, implemented during the Hamidian period that would allow people like him from the provinces to become uh, 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 officials at the center. What Abdul Hamid did is that he he used people like him who have specific language skills uh, and educational skills and military skills as as ambassadors, as diplomatic negotiators that would be sent to different places based on the skill level that they have. He, Sadiq Azamzadeh, happened to be a, a guy that has been in the service of the court from the moment he left the military college in Istanbul. So he was very 
well liked and trusted by the Sultan. And he immediately starts to be um, sent on these sensitive diplomatic missions that would start with uh, with going to places like the, the Hejaz. Then they would develop into going to places like to negotiate with the Senussi, then Ethiopia. And of course, in between, he's in Chechnya, he's in Bulgaria, he's in Macedonia. So his, his skills uh, went far beyond just negotiating with people that spoke Arabic. So even though I emphasize his Arabic language skills as one of the reasons he's he's chosen, there's many people that spoke Arabic. He he actually was brilliant at, at kind of connecting the imperial with the local. And he deeply believed in it. That is what, That makes him a very compelling person for a historian because he is not just, he's not just an agent. He is also like a narrator of history, both through his actions and through a lot of the records that he left behind. That's what made him an interesting character to follow for me uh, at the beginning. And later as like the thread that connects the story that I was trying to tell in a way, hopefully that is compelling to a reader that is not not necessarily fully a specialist, but that is actually invested in in understanding late Ottoman imperialism, if that makes sense. Whenever there's a human being, and there is in this case, that is connecting all these factors, it's it becomes easier, at least I hope, to to follow through a book that otherwise is talking about international law and and diplomacy and and politics. I'm now halfway through a book about what I call uh, when it all falls apart is the title of the book. Arab Ottoman imperialist of Istanbul at the end of empire, in which I delve much further into the lives of him and people like him in Istanbul as a kind of a refraction of of their work outside of Istanbul, how their life is changing, how the lives of their families, their daughters, their sons and their wives are being impacted by what's happening as they are being challenged as non-Turk Ottomans (laughs) towards the end of the empire for in terms of their loyalty and their sense of belonging and where do they where does their allegiance actually stand as what was assumed in the 1880s become less of an assumption in the 1890s and and almost suspect in the beginning of the 20th century now during the same period the ottoman administrative apparatus was also expanding elsewhere in the empire Part of the book talks about the Hijaz and how there was an extension of the Ottoman reach there through uh, various infrastructure works. And there was also, of course, increased centralization and increased government involvement in uh, other peripheral areas of eastern Anatolia and the Arab provinces elsewhere. And there was also the development of new ministries for public works, education, health, forestry, settlement, etc. So I just wonder if you could reflect a bit on how that process of imperial integration essentially compares with what you studied in the book in Africa and the expansion of, of, of the Ottoman reach there. Are the two at all comparable or what are the big differences that you would that you would say are, are there? Uh, I think they are the same project. Uh, I don't only think they are comparable. I think they are part of a unified policy, if you will. The reason I say they are part of the same project is because the reasons that are the driving force behind a lot of the centralization efforts that are happening inside of the uh, the empire proper are the same driving force behind what the Ottomans were doing outside of the empire uh, as well. So the Ottomans claiming uh, the hinterland 
land of Libya as a colonial possession is part and parcel of their effort to strengthen the empire globally, but also maintain their sovereignty internally. Of course, there are everything from infrastructure projects to, to using Islam as a, in a political manner that would unify, or at least that would that hopefully will appease some of their citizens in the Arab provinces and Anatolia that for the first time are the vast majority of their Muslims and they're the vast majority of the, of the citizens in the empire. The education program, the, the Ministry of Education that is putting out very specific history of the empire, geography of the empire that is being kind of dis- disseminated amongst what they wanted to be the, uh, the whole of empire. Also, even the control for the first time in a very specific kind of government-driven way, the religious practices. All of these things are part of what the empire was trying to do, which is an empire that is not confident in its very survival, in its very, in the security of its sovereignty, in its long-term security in terms of autonomy, internally and externally. So what I, the way I bring in the Hijaz telegraph line, which again, uh, Azamzade worked on, is that a lot of what was happening with the Hijaz, uh, with the decisions being made for such a major infrastructure project, cannot just be understood fully through policies that have to do with the government, uh, uh, with things that are happening within the empire itself. It has to be understood as a part of what was taking place in other parts of the empire. And what I focus on in my book is, of course, what's happening in in the hinterland of Libya, in, in the Lake Chad Basin. I try to relate the internal infrastructure projects and decision being made around the projects in the empire to what was happening outside of the empire and how if we do not understand what is happening outside of the empire, the external policies of the empire, we would not fully understand what was happening internally or we'd make the wrong assumptions. So to kind of summarize, I don't only see them as compatible, I see them as two parts of the same project. Now, all this is very interesting in the current climate because in the last few years, Turkey has really expanded its influence in many of the same areas that the book talks about of East Africa. So there's an increasingly deep relationship with Somalia, for example, big cultural exchange, military training uh, going on, and a real sense that Turkey is sort of seeking to really boost its clout in this part of the world. I just wonder if you could connect the present day with this era that you're talking about in the book. Could you just expand a bit on that, on those connections uh, across over a century? Sure. Uh, As a historian, I find it dangerous to kind of make uh, linear connections. Uh, So I cannot say that A led to B over a century and a half. What I can see, however, is how the current administration is working to relate those two things in very interesting ways. It would not be a big deal if we did not, if the uh, if the current regime did not, or that current government in Turkey has not actively worked to use history as a tool to legitimize a lot of what they were doing in Africa. That's where it becomes interesting. So you then you have to look at what was happening in Africa that they claim was happening in Africa about a, a hundred years or two hundred years ago, and how they're using it as a way to justify their presence there, particularly to the local population. So uh, even though in the first book, I talked specifically about what uh, that project that has to do with the hinterland of Libya or the Lake Chad Basin, they were also involved in negotiations and these very harsh, uh, very heartfelt debates with with European counterparts about territories in, in 
in Somalia, in territories in what is today Djibouti, in territories of what is today Eritrea, as well as Sawakin, which is off the coast of uh, Sudan and other parts of Sudan. Uh, the reason I bring this up this way is to say that what the government right now is doing in, in exactly those areas, as they are competing with other powers, both European and none, actually mostly none. So who are they competing with right now? When they're bidding for infrastructure projects, their biggest competitor is, of course, China. But uh, when it comes to political influence, as well as uh, military influence, their biggest competitors are, are uh, Arab countries in the Gulf, you know, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and their allies in the region, such as Egypt. And of course, the allies of Turkey in the region are Qatar and as the Somali government, as opposed to the government of the Som of Somaliland. So they are competing with them on one level, but they also have a whole other project uh, that has been going on for years, I would say even for more than a decade, of kind of soft, uh, soft diplo uh, diplomacy that comes with building hospitals, with building schools, with educating people in, in the history in a very specific way, and also uh, getting people to kind of have an affinity to, the, to uh, modern Turkey uh, through language and, and song and culture. That has been going on for much longer than the military investment and much longer than the economic investment or the infrastructure investment that the Turkey is doing now. Now it's coming to, to the fruits of that long-term labor is coming up. And that I want to emphasize is very different than what China is doing. And it's very different than what uh, the strategy that United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia has taken. So the investment is long and deep. So you cannot blame the local government for wanting to use history of Ottoman presence in those regions in the most positive light to try and convince the local population or even the Turkish population of their good intentions of being there, whether it is to build the, the largest military base outside of Turkey, which they have in Somalia, or to lease Sawakin, which is an island off of Sudan for 99 years, which reeks of, you know, colonialism. But if you want to spin it in, in a different way, you definitely need this long investment uh, that goes deep into the, the society, not just the rulers that you're dealing with. The connection that they're making is, is a I want to say, is an, an inaccurate connection, if I may. And in some cases, I would say it's almost like a, taking the surface of Ottoman uh, presence and not delving into why the Ottomans were there and what they were doing in very specific ways in very specific areas, because otherwise you'll get to the nitty gritty and the ugly of imperialism. <laughs> so it doesn't suit their purposes to, it's, it suits their purposes to talk about, you know, some schools that the Ottomans built. It suits their purposes to talk about the alliances that the Ottomans did with some of the local chieftains fighting uh, the British in one sense or fighting, of course, the Italians in Libya. But there is a whole other broad, complex, multi-layered involvement of the Ottomans in that region, and it changes from area to area based on their own interests, just like any other state would have done. I'm not singling out the Ottomans. Just like it is okay to study British imperialism in specific areas and kind of figuring out how it worked in, I don't know, in Kenya or Nigeria versus how it worked in, in India, I think we should be able to study also how the Ottomans were dealt with different parts, particularly in Africa, in different ways based on their own interests, regional uh, geopolitical interests at that time in the late 19th century. And that's what I tried to do. That's a very long answer to say that the Ottomans were present in those same areas. So that's where what the current government is saying is correct. 
correct. The Ottomans did a lot of good things there. That is also correct. But the Ottomans were also an imperial power that did what it felt was necessary for its own interests, particularly under pressure from European powers that were trying to kind of fight over the same territory. That is where we differ. That's where my my research interest goes off the official description of Ottoman and Turkish connections in, in the region. Now, finally, the book has been translated into Turkish and it's actually become subject of a certain controversy in recent months mm-hmm. uh, following an article, I believe, in a Turkish magazine, a very hostile article and a subsequent kind of campaign on social media. Just wonder if you could uh, summarize for us basically what that was about, what were the claims and uh, just summarize that controversy for us. Sure. Um, The claim is very simple, almost simplistic, I should say. And I think those claims have to be for them to become this popular. The claim is that I have written a book that was intentionally meant to um, put the reputation of the Ottoman Empire and by proxy and by, by, you know, by extension, the, the reputation of Turkey into question in Africa. They claim that I, in some cases, they even called me an agent of power. They claim that that is what I was doing with the first book by talking about Ottoman imperialism in Africa. They were upset by the title. The title was a uh, we couldn't find an equivalent to the scramble for Africa as a term, uh, as a concept in Turkish. We had we literally had roundtables about the title, and we decided to go with a title that was probably harsher than we intended. We wanted to be a little like to draw readers in, but the hope was that you would draw the readers in and they will then read the nuance in the book. But what happens is that most of the people just did not like the title and they attacked the book, assuming that my intention with this book was to attack the Ottoman Empire and to paint it in the same brush as British and French imperialism in Africa, which of course, that's not what I do if you read the book. At the beginning, I kept saying, read the book, read the book, read the book. That was my answer to people because they obviously what they were talking about meant they did not read the book. But then I noticed that it's really not about that. It's about specific people, that, uh, some quasi-academics, but they work for institutions that are like governmental institutions that are out there to get clicks, to get uh, likes, sacrificing academics works, serious academic work uh, for the sake of getting more clicks and more likes on on kind of inflammatory uh, claims. I have to emphasize that the so-called review is not a review. It is just repeating this idea that I am some agent who is intentionally out there to write falsehoods. Of course, it's not. It's sad as well, because the reason I wanted it translated into Turkish in the first place and made available in Turkish is I wanted to engage with the Turkish public as well as uh, uh, my academic counterparts in Turkey that might not feel comfortable reading the book in English. And really, that was the intention of doing it. What ended up happening is, unfortunately, the people that pick up on it, uh, the people that picked up on it initially and and continue to do so are people that work to um, their propaganda machines, essentially. So discussion about it on an academic level, discussion about the ideas that I present, unfortunately, went by the wayside. It made me sad and it made me angry initially, but then it made me sad because it makes me think twice now about publishing anything in Turkish because the attacks have been vicious and they made me 
feel very unsafe, to be completely honest. You're surprised that somebody would actually go after a book that is right, talking about the late 19th century, but it goes to the question that you asked about the connections that the, that the government is making uh, between this image of a benevolent uh, Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century and what they were doing now, and anything that in any way goes into the details or kind of questions that or that asks you to look further into what imperialism means goes against that objective. And that's why they went after the book. That was Mustafa Minawi. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 133. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you could support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Arriving in your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bütün dünyayı gezdim dolaştım Anladım ki tek 